Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Welcome back to another episode of the Gift First podcast. Listen, a lot of you are building companies. You're going to get to the point where maybe there's some kind of outcome you'd like to have, whether that's IPOing the company, selling it. Sometimes it doesn't work. But I've got two guests today. I've got Mert Isseri and Mark Ackler. Welcome, guys. Yeah. Hey, David. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. Great to be here, David. Thank you for having us. Mert and Mark are long time, been around the Techstar system, amazing mentors. The book that they've just written is called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Startup, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy. Don't forget about that last part, Build Your Legacy. Why'd you guys write this book? Mert, I'll start with you. I went through an exit uh, with my own startup, SwipeSense. Uh, it's a healthcare technology company. You know, We went through the, the ups and downs of startups that you're all too familiar with. And in the end of it, it was a happy ending. We were acquired by S.C. Johnson in March of 2020. And by the way, talk about stress in startups. I mean, this was the period where we were discussing, should we wear a mask? Should we wear gloves? Like, right was code was starting. And I'm here like with an IV line, like, please let this deal go through. It was one of the, <laughs> one of the most stressful moments in my life. But we made it to the other side. And I was like, man, this could have been a lot better. I felt like I didn't know a lot of the things. And then Mark, Mark Wunk is an amazing supporter. He's been a long-time mentor of mine. And I sat down to talk with him about all the things that could have been with the deal. And you know, I'm obviously very, very grateful for it. A lot of startups don't even get to see uh, their startup get successfully acquired. And I consider myself very, very lucky around this. But I just felt like, man... There were so many lessons here that I learned along the way. I wish there was something that I could just like, I, I wish somebody could have just told me what to look for and what to do. So I was frustrated and we were in this cafe sort of going over the could have and the would have and, and the should have. And one thing led to another and we decided to put this book together to help other founders. Mark, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm coaching Mert and he's grumbling at this moment of joy. And I said, Mert, you know, while it's still fresh in your mind, while you're, while you're still living every moment of it, why don't you write it down? And why don't you write it down in the spirit of giving back, in the spirit of the next time S.E. Johnson buys a tech company, you can say, hey, guys, this is what I experienced. Here how, here's how we can make the process better. And at the same time, as he started writing that down and outpoured 10 pages, we realized that it's not just internally for S.C. Johnson, but there's so many entrepreneurs out there who really need the help, need the assistance. And so in the spirit of giving back, we wrote this book. And we, what we realized is there's so many business books out there, how to start a business, how to raise money, how to sell, messy middle, sales, marketing. But it turns out there's very few books about how to sell your business. 
And part of the reason why is, one, transactions are confidential. Two, people don't want to brag. If they had a good transaction, you know, they don't want to brag about it. Or if it was a bad transaction, you know, maybe they're a little sheepish about it. They want you to think it was better than it was. If it was better. <laughs> or it could be better, right? And so we realized, we looked around, we go, there's so little written about this. And what we did is we went out and we interviewed dozens and dozens of CEOs who had from big companies to middle-sized companies to small companies. And we asked them, you know, the classic question, what do you know now? that you wish you would have known before? What can you share? What can you pass on? And we got all sorts of great stories and learnings and a lot of scar tissue. And then we asked, we're big believers in empathy. And in transaction, there's multiple stakeholders. So we talked to M&A attorneys and we talked to bankers and we talked more importantly to the leaders of Corp Dev and all the big tech companies in the Valley. And we said to the Corp Dev leaders, Give us an example of what a great transaction looks like from your point of view and why, what made it so good. And give us an example of a transaction that failed. And a lot of transactions fail. And, you know, why? And what do you wish CEOs knew before they started to talk to you? It was such a fun journey. You know, it's funny. People ask me in my own book, you know, Do More Faster, why I wrote that. And the answer was the same. It's like, we've been saying and learning this stuff and we just want other people to know it. And people imagine that y'all are writing a book because you're going to get a lot of money from the book. It's very much a give first activity. Trust us. Any of us who've written a book for the entrepreneurial market, we know that. And it's really about just sharing the knowledge. And it sounds like it kind of started for the acquirer, but really grew into for the CEO or for the company and maybe for investors. And it's very actionable, full of really interesting stories, but also very practical things to do, right? It's not just fluffy you know, storytelling, which I love. I love the give first nature of it. I love that you guys have done it. If people don't know you all, I probably should have given you this opportunity at the very beginning. Obviously, we know Mert had the successful outcome. Mark, you're, you're involved with Math Venture Partners. Troy Hennikoff, obviously, is someone a lot of people in our network would know. But how did your background as an investor, Mark, really plug into this? Because I, I know for your portfolio companies, they're all interested in this, but a lot of them maybe right now are just focused on creating value and not focused on the exit. Is, is your experience that people need to read and understand this well before it's time to actually sell? Yes. So first of all, my background, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I have built four companies from scratch. I've raised a lot of money, venture capital money, as a CEO, as an investor. And I've been a venture investor for decades, going back to the dot-com days. When we wrote this book, part of the learnings is the minute you take investor money, you're taking their agenda. And their agenda is pretty straightforward. They need to get an exit in X amount of time frame. It depends on each investor is a little bit different, but the time frame is relatively consistent. And there's a playbook, a venture playbook. And we're big believers in relationship building And that relationship building and trust building starts when you start your company. It means that you start to get a lay of the land. You understand who your competitors are. You understand who potential acquirers might be. You start to build those frameworks and relationships gradually over time. And it actually goes past a transaction as well. So people think sometimes of a transaction as a moment in time But look, your legacy 
in the book, we pose the question, when a transaction is over, will your investors want to invest in your next company? Will your employees want to come join you in the next company? Will your acquirers want to acquire your next company? An exit, hopefully, is a joyous moment in time. But your relationships and your legacy last, hopefully, through the rest of your career. And that's a real important part of the book as well. It really does all end up being about those human relationships, right? And I think it's true on the other side of the equation, too. I mean, one of the things I find myself doing, we've now had hundreds of of companies acquired out of our portfolio, is giving feedback to the acquirers, right, about how things feel to the entrepreneurs, because they're talking about the acquirers in the market, too, right? And so on every side of it, it really boils down to the human relationships and how things feel. They're going to be a little tense, right, in moments, uh, and their strategies, I'm sure, you know, around who's the negotiator, who's the good cop, who's the bad cop, all those things. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of these frameworks that you guys have figured out through studying all this and and maybe make it a little actionable for people other than just go read the book. When you think about selling a company, like how far in advance do I need to think about that? What should I be thinking about? What what are the key things that maybe someone listening can take away without having to buy the book? Because that's going to make them want to go buy it. (laughs) Well, one of the main beliefs that we wanted to sort of directly address with this book is the prevailing wisdom. And I'm reflecting on this from my own experience as an entrepreneur is uh, don't worry about the exit. It will take care of itself. Oh, just build a great business. And you know, someone will come and There's this myth that one day you're sitting in your corner office looking outside the glass window and Jeff Bezos gives you a call and wants to buy your company. That's not reality. That's not how this works. By the way, like if you have built an amazing, incredible, everything is to the up to the right, the investors are banging down your door, more power to you. We all know who are involved with startups is that things aren't as rosy and you have to work at these things. You know, your next round doesn't come together. You have to go out and fundraise. So one of the big things that we want to sort of introduce as Exit Right is that your exit should be a thoughtful, planned activity. Let's take something very, very straightforward like, are we aligned as a board on when we should sell this company? This is a fundamental question. And I can assure you that if you think you are aligned and you have not had this conversation in the past, you know, three, four years, you are not aligned. <laughs> you need to know the time frame of your fund's next LPs. What are your expectations in your life? What are your investors assuming? As you? So we introduced, for instance, this simple framework called Exit Talk, where once a year, it's a predetermined time. You sit down with your board and you have an honest conversation about, okay, what's our threshold? Are we continuing to build this company? Are we going to sell this company? The reason why entrepreneurs don't bring this up right now is obvious, because if you start talking about your exit, maybe your investors will think that you're not as motivated. Maybe they will think that, hey, uh, you're just looking to get out. You're not thinking about creating long-term value. Obviously, there has to be sort of an advance notice in this conversation coming up. But this is just one of those nuggets where we're trying to normalize the conversation around, hey, let's have an exit, not as a happenstance, you know, lucky event, but something that we've cultivated and built towards in certain cases for years to come. Mark, I'd love to turn it over to you and hear your thoughts on this as well. Well, yeah, I mean, there's such a stigma to talking about exits, but openness and transparency with your board and alignment is really important. So, for example, are you going to sell to when somebody wants to sell? You'll have different varying agendas between the management team, between investors. Different investors have different agendas, different points of view, having that open conversation. And what type of transaction is it going to be? Are you going to sell to a strategic buyer? Are you going to sell to a financial buyer? Are you going to sell to somebody who cares about top line revenue? Or are you going to care about to a financial buyer who might care about EBITDA? And if you think the time frame might be two years in the future, 
and you know how you're going to optimize for a transaction, you might turn the knobs a little bit. If somebody cares more about top line, you might be pushing top line a little bit harder. If somebody cares about your patent portfolio and your intellectual property, you might pay more attention to filing some claims. So having that conversation so everybody can be aligned, so you take the stigma out of it, you have it at a regularly scheduled time, and you together figure out how to optimize not only for the best time, the best partner. And part of that, too, is we came up with a framework that we call FAIR, which is fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. And this framework is a really interesting way to help organize and structure your thinking about what makes a good partner. You like so many things in life, uh, just talking about it actually helps. And, uh, you know, sitting on boards and being an investor, I think talking about it once a year is a great idea. And a lot of companies, you're right, don't do that. And it's very hard to know what you're trying to accomplish or whether or not you should even engage in a conversation. Somebody comes in and says, you know, we want to buy your company. We're thinking it's going to be, you know, five million bucks. You should already know if you want to engage with that conversation or not based on you and your investors and your board's alignment. So I think that's great advice. And I think there's so many things like that where just talking about it with the team can be just so powerful. But when we think about talking about it, I'm curious about another element of this that I know there's a lot of mixed opinions on, which is sort of transparency during the process, particularly with your team. I mean, obviously you're going to go talk to your board and all of that, but at what point do you tell executives, hey, we're engaging in this, or the full team? A lot of companies do it after the deal is done, surprise. A lot of companies uh, want to get way in front of it, and then you worry about confidentiality and leaks and negotiating power and all those things. What do you guys advise? It's a delicate dance. That's a great question. So let's start top down. One, the board has to be aligned. Your executive team, depends on how big the company is, but the key members of your executive team, the ones that you're going to trust, first of all, to run your business. One of the challenges in running a process, a sales process, is sometimes you're so involved in the process, you take the eye off the ball. Somebody on your team has to be managing the business to make sure that things don't go south while you, the CEO, is fully engaged in running a process. So a couple of the key members of your team. The next thing to think about is due diligence. If you get far enough down the path where the acquiring company is starting to do due diligence, they're going to want to talk to key stakeholders. They're going to want to talk to your CFO. They're going to want to talk maybe to a chief technical officer or a key technical lead. And so you're going to have to keep a fairly tight rein but as due diligence progresses, that's going to engage a little bit more of your team. One of the challenges, this balance, this tension between transparency, one is you don't want your employees to take their eye off the ball. They got to run their business and they want to be focused. The second is deals fall apart all the time. So the minute somebody hears a deal, an employee hears a deal, they go, oh, they look to their options. How much money am I going to get? They get excited. And then when the deal doesn't happen, there's a natural letdown, right? And so there's no right or wrong here. What I like to do is I like to gradually keep your key executives informed, the people who are going to be part of due diligence, and the more likely a transaction is going to happen, the closer you are to the transaction, you can widen that net, that aperture of who gets to know. I also believe that employees 
once again, it depends on the size of the company. The smaller the company, it's awfully hard to keep secrets. But I believe that it would be unfortunate to surprise employees post-transaction. So to the extent that you can educate them as close to the transaction happening as possible, at least they won't be surprised. They'll feel like they were trusted. And, you know, to me, the, the true measure is, do the employees feel like they're being taken care of, that they're being treated fairly? And as a CEO, what I want to know is the things that I value and cherish most are the relationships I have with my employees. The real question is, will you, those employees come and follow you the next time? And part of that is how they're treated during this process. So it's a balancing act. I think, yeah, reading about it on Twitter uh, is probably not optimal for an employee. <laughs> oh, we were acquired today. But for most companies, especially larger ones, it's it's somewhere pretty close to that timing, right, in my experience. And of course, you know, your executive team and your board would, would know a lot more about it. But it is an art, uh, not a science, I'm sure. So when that exit happens, it's a crazy time. You were just mentioning your next company and people following you, but you're probably going to be locked up for a little while, right, working for the employer, and that's natural. In that period, what should founders think about? What matters most? What should they think about immediately when that transaction is done? Because they built this business, they've had this win, right? And now it's sort of not your baby anymore. And that can be emotionally challenging. So for those that maybe are, are nearing an exit, what advice would you have for when you get done with it? Well, if you follow the process that we recommend in the book, which is look for cultural fit, ensure that there's internal alignment and external alignment within the buyer, make sure that there is a strategy to integrate the two businesses, as well as a solid rationale to create future value for your hopeful, your mutual set of customers. Ideally, the strategy for the next two, three years is already set because you know what you need to do in order for these businesses to come together. That's your integration plan. How are we going to serve our customers better? How are we going to start delivering value as fast as possible? And that's hopefully a thoughtful plan that takes care of your team, that takes care of your customers, that takes care of your technology. That shouldn't be something that's left post-transaction. That's something that very much is part of the rationale of why these two companies should come together. And most important, the rationale shouldn't necessarily be defined as, here's how much money we're making as a result of this because we're selling our shares. The rationale should be defined as, here's how we're going to create more impact for our customers. Here is why us joining forces together makes more sense for the people that we ultimately serve. And you serve your customers. That's the reason. That's the mission of why we get up in the morning in the first place. So if this is done right... All we're going to do is create more impact for our customers. And that is what the focus needs to be around. And this is also true, for instance, if the deal falls through. If the deal falls through, it shouldn't be framed as, man, they renegotiated on this or the price was lower than we expected. The real answer is, we thought we could create impact for our customers this way. It didn't end up happening. We're going to go do it ourselves by either raising more capital, reinvesting our profits, whatever it is. It's all about the customers. And we really think that this is sort of like the framing of what exits should be portrayed as. This is a means for us to create more impact as a result of us joining forces. Now, of course, there's a lot more nuance as well. I mean, you, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, you're not going to be reporting to someone. That's not the board of directors. That's likely someone who is closer to a mid-manager or maybe the CEO of a much larger company. But it's still, you not have a reporting, reporting relationships. So you have to understand, you know, be the person that you like managing yourselves. Understand your numbers, understand your metrics. The whole idea here is this. It's no longer about you. It's about you two as a team. It's about you two accomplishing something. 
So your requires agenda has to be your agenda. And hopefully those things are so aligned with what you're trying to do. It's not necessarily a distraction or a deviation of what your plan is. And by the way, before the transaction, one of the ways to capture the most value going to it's not about you, understanding your potential acquirer, understanding their business, understanding their rationale, understanding the leverage that your product, the hole that your product line plugs in the acquirer, that's how you maximize value because they're not buying, typically, they're not buying your revenue stream unless it's a financial transaction. They're buying the leverage that your customer base, your technology, the hole that you plug for them, that maybe it could improve their existing customer retention. If your acquirer, buys your company and your product line, if all it did is help improve the retention of the existing acquirer's company, that's worth way more, chances are, than just the top line revenue that you bring to bear, right? That's how you maximize value. I remember this is my first company. I don't know how I knew this back then, but I, I studied the acquirer hard. It, it was a, a public company and the story was this software that we're acquiring from you guys is going to greatly enhance our customer base. And it was a stock transaction. So we were really focused on not only helping the customers you talked about, but what the upside opportunity with doing this versus just doing it on our own would be. And that stock ended up 10xing right after we sold it and stuck around in the next few years. So that can be a huge, huge part of the equation. This is the last question. I'm going to make people read the book after this, I promise. But when you have a company that you're selling, and there's a price being paid for it, and the acquirer, you know, we really believe in it, and it's going to be magical and all this thing, and then the dreaded earnout comes into play, right? Is it dreaded? Is it not dreaded? It's dreaded for me when I see it, because it's hard to guarantee the way that value is going to be created when, again, you're not running the thing anymore, right? Someone's taking it over, you now have a boss, you have a bunch of peers, it may become less important if it doesn't work the way they envisioned it. That's a question I get a lot is, is this earnout something I should fight? Is it something I should lean into? How do you advise people to think about that element? That's a great question. There's a very contentious part of any transaction. The first question is your investor group. Because your investors want to get as much money up front and the acquiring company wants to incentivize the CEO and the executive team for future results. So there is immediately tension in some, many transactions between how much money goes to pay prior shareholders, how much money goes to incent future behavior your existing shareholders won't benefit from. So that's the first tension. The second is you identified it. Mert, I think it was Patrick Sullivan when he sold his company to Google. He had a great story in our book about this where he had earnouts. Google promised him X amount of resources. Those res resources did not materialize and he couldn't, he was behind his plan. He couldn't earn the money they were promised if he didn't get the resources. And he, he stormed the castle. He went berserk. He, he went and talked to the guy who structured the deal at Google from the corp dev team and said, look, this is what you promised. Deliver. And to their credit, Google stood up and delivered and gave him the resources, but he had to really fight for it. And so for me, it's a very delicate balance between maximizing your return today and benefiting from the future shared creative value. And there are people in life who can think about a zero-sum game where they want to maximize return now versus if you 
philosophically, holistically believe I'm going to be part of this new entity. And together, we're going to create outsized multiple value. And if I have the resources under my control to create that value, then there's, it's okay to have some upside. So that was a long-winded answer. It's very complicated, very nuanced. It's very individual. And to me, there's no right or wrong answer. I think it's important to capture enough of the value up front that if things don't work out, you could walk away with your head held high. Like a lot of things in, in startups, you don't really know the answer for five or 10 years after you start doing it, right? Because you have to look back on it and say, was that the right decision? And I remember a Techstars portfolio company, the book name Exit Right. I love the double entendre of it because these guys were deciding between two exits. They took the lower priced one because they liked the acquirer and they believed in the upside and they were right. But it's hard. You could be wrong. So I'm sure people are looking forward to reading the book February 15th on all major booksellers. I'm sure we will have a few copies and share them with, with companies that are going through this. But Exit Right, thanks for writing it, guys. Thanks for giving first to the startup community, as you always do. And I know people will figure out how to get in touch with you. We'll have the book in the show notes, as well as some of your personal contact info. So thanks for the time today. Great talking to you, David. We're so grateful for Techstars and all that you do. And anybody out there who reads the book, and if it moves you or you have a, a story, we've already gotten several stories from people who have read early copies, who are in the middle of transactions and how it helped, we would love to learn together with you, with our readers. So please, by all means, reach out to us. Got to nail that second edition. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, give first.